we were doing a series on the uh, attributes of God by looking at some of the kings in the Old Testament and uh, sometimes seeing how when we are at our worst, God is at his best. And we're going to see that again today as we look at God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for these wonderful people that you love so very much. And it's so great to see Jim and Carolyn here. And I really pray, Lord, for for Jim that uh, this transplant that he is anticipating could happen soon. Thank you that you've kept his health so good in the meantime. But we know you're in control of that situation. And it's so good to uh, to know that because we love our brother. And uh, thank you for his ministry. Thank you for both of them. And thank you for your word, Lord. We just uh, rejoice that we can be in a place where we agree that your word is authoritative and that all scripture is inspired and profitable so that we can be equipped for every good work. And we look forward to uh, experiencing that again today as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A.W. Tozer pointed out that it is impossible to have a healthy attitude about ourselves and other people if our concept of God is faulty. And that's really a very easy mistake to make. In fact, if you study history, you can't help but notice how human conceptions of God have changed dramatically. For example, there was a medieval god of the Dark Ages, the militant god of the Crusades, the malignant god of the Inquisition, the mechanical god of the Enlightenment, and the meddling god of the Puritanical Age. So this sermon is brought to you by M&M's, the candy that melts in your mouth, not in your hands. (laughs) Conceptions of God keep changing. Because human nature has a bias, we have a tendency towards imbalance. Instead of a steady plumb line, we have a swinging pendulum. And each generation tends to overreact and overstress some of the attributes that the previous one underestimated. And we are no different, because that's what's trending now. Most of the focus these days is on God's love, and it should be. But sometimes, so much so that his holiness is being ignored. We avoid talking about judgment, about God's wrath, about hell, because love is all you need. Well, that's a faulty, faulty, unhealthy imbalance. And it's unnecessary because there's absolutely no conflict between God's love and his holiness. It's not a competition. We're not cheering for love. We hope love wins. In fact, if you underestimate God's holiness, you also diminish the power of his love. Because the love of God is most vividly seen in the context of his holy wrath against sin and evil. The question is, how is it possible for a God who hates sin that much to still love sinners? As humans, we have a hard time with that. You know, it's one or the other. 
As parents, we sometimes find ourselves conflicted. We want to love the sinner, but still hate the sin. And these days, I keep hearing of more and more parents whose kids are making decisions that uh, have forced them to decide that they will love the sinner and just forget about the sin. They won't even see that as a sin anymore because their child is involved. How is it possible for a God who hates sin that much to still love sinners? Well, that's the question we're confronted with in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 in this episode of Game of Thrones. 2 Chronicles is found somewhere between Genesis and Revelation. If you've reached Habakkuk, you've gone too far. It's page 349. Now, chapter 32 describes the final days of King Hezekiah. He was a godly king, and he led his nation toward righteousness. And when he died, his son Manasseh took his place, succeeded him. It says in chapter 33, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. Last week, we looked at Uzziah, who was 16 when he took the throne. Oh, Manasseh was only 12. He was too young to even get a learner's license to drive a chariot. And he reigned for 55 years. Do you know in the past 55 years, Canada has had 13 prime ministers? From Diefenbaker, Pearson, and Trudeau, to Kretchen, and Harper, and... Trudeau, is that right? Can that be right? 55 years ago, JFK was in the White House. 55 years. You can do a lot of good in that amount of time, but also a lot of damage. Unfortunately, the momentum swung back to the dark side. If Israel had a Sith Lord, it was Manasseh. It says in verse 2, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished and also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. And that's exactly what we see happening in our culture. Baal and Asherah, Well, we celebrate every sexual perversion possible. Anything goes. And we also bow down to the starry hosts at the Academy Awards and red carpet celebrity events. And because we don't have enough superstars, we manufacture even more on American Idol and The Voice and the next top model, etc., etc. Our culture glitters with stardust. Now, of course, this is a specific reference to occultic astrology. Now watch this, you're not going to believe it. Verse 4, he built altars in the temple of the Lord, which the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry hosts. You see, this is the end game of evil. The powers and principalities are not content to just dominate their own turf. The Vegas Strip, the French Quarter, South Beach, Hell's Kitchen... That's not enough. The game they're playing is monopoly. They want to dominate it all, especially the house of God. They want to set up their banners in the holy places. 
In China, Xi Jinping has ordered churches to display communist flags and to replace crosses with his Facebook picture. Imagine if you came into this sanctuary and found it was filled with posters promoting abortion and advertising cannabis. And uh, there was some that said, vote liberal. And right in the middle, there was a banner stretching from the ceiling to the floor that had the emblem of the Oilers. Can you imagine what an abomination? Unclean. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the story, starry hosts. Now, he was really into the occult, and he proved his devotion by committing the most unspeakable abomination you can imagine. Human sacrifice. Verse 6, it says, He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. His own sons, the most important people in his life. And he practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. All Uzziah did was trespass into the temple. That was a misdemeanor compared to Manasseh. Everything he did was a defiance of, of God's holiness, and it provoked God to wrath. He changed the temple into an embassy for their satanic majesties, and he eagerly pursued diplomatic relations with the devil. And so God struck him with leprosy. Well, not exactly. Verse 7 says, He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple. An idol. What an abomination. And the question is, meanwhile, what's happening among his subjects? Because many of his citizens were righteous people who had been impacted by the revival during the previous administration. They must have been horrified by what their king was doing. So were there demonstrations and protests? Special prayer meetings? In 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16, a parallel passage, it says, Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end beside the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Persecution broke out. And Manasseh destroyed the bodies of the righteous, but he could not destroy their souls. And during that reign of terror, those who survived must have spent a lot of time praying. When evil dominates a culture, God's people cry out for intervention. They were all hoping that Manasseh's reign would be brief. But it went on and on and on. How long, O Lord? How long? When will you answer our prayers? Evil is highly contagious, and it began to spread throughout the nation in epidemic proportions. Verse 9 says, But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. It wasn't just a king. This was becoming a cultural phenomenon until the promised land was cursed with evil and they became even more wicked than the pagan nations that Joshua had defeated and destroyed in his conquest. Judah was worse than the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Amorites. So that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed. 
The whole nation was being led astray. And some of them had, were believers. But when the righteous fall, sometimes they sink further than unbelievers. It's interesting that many of the most irreverent critics of Christianity in our culture were raised in evangelical homes. It's heartbreaking. So the question is, God, when are you going to put a stop to this blasphemy? How long must we endure defeat? The loyal resistance was hoping that Manasseh's reign would be brief, but he remained in power 55 years. That's longer than any other monarch in the history of Israel. An unrighteous king can do a lot of damage in that amount of time. That really bothers me. You know, some sinners have ridiculously long lifespans. Atheists like George Bernard Shaw and Bertrand Russell. Scoffers and mockers like Hugh Hefner. Why was Hitler allowed to command his evil empire for all those years? You know, there was a plot to assassinate him that almost succeeded in July of 1944. It was masterminded by Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg, and numerous disillusioned army officers, as well as a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, if there ever was a righteous hit, that was it. It was the best opportunity they had to rid the world of that maniac. But the assassination barely failed, and Hitler survived, and the war continued. And consequently, 5,000 suspected conspirators were executed, including Pastor Bonhoeffer. Why, God? Why didn't it succeed? Well, I guess we, we assume that if that assassination had succeeded, that it would have ended the war sooner. But we don't know that. It's also possible that Hitler's death would have opened the door to even greater evil. And that would have made the situation far worse and ultimately prolonged the war well beyond 1945 because, remember, they almost had the atom bomb. And fortunately, by this time, Hitler's mental faculties were deteriorating and he was making some really foolish mistakes. Had somebody else taken over, it's possible that the war could have lasted even longer. You know, you get rid of one evil, and a greater evil will take its place. You get rid of Al-Qaeda, and there comes ISIS. We don't know why evil is given that much time to do so much damage. Why doesn't God intervene sooner? Well, Jesus explained that in a very interesting parable in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? Wouldn't you love to do that? When we plant our gardens and we see those weeds, we just want to get at them so fast. And every day we're watching for more weeds. Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, 
he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Sometimes God doesn't do a lot of weeding. And that's precisely because he's not worried that evil is somehow going to win. He's not worried that good will be destroyed because good will grow in any circumstances. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Good seed will grow in any circumstances because it is rooted in God's sufficient grace. Even in the dark ages of King Ahab, there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And I'll tell you, I used to be a weed. And I'm so glad they didn't pluck me up. Now, don't misquote me. I never said I used to do weed. I said I used to be a weed. I actually tried that stuff back in the 60s. I took one puff, and it was so disgusting. It was like something you'd smell in an outhouse. And so I took a second puff because I thought, it, it's got to be getting better because that was just awful. The second was even worse. I almost wanted to throw up. It's disgusting. Give me juicy wine gums, and I'll, I'm happy. So don't misquote me, all right? Jesus went on to explain this parable. He said in verse 41, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, and they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. God is sovereign. So he's not in a hurry. And that's precisely why some people turn to the occult, because the dark side offers efficiency and high-speed results. You can sell your soul in under 10 minutes. Operators are standing by. The problem with Uzziah was that his God had become too safe. The problem in Manasseh's day is that God seemed too slow. I mean, Manasseh is the tallest weed in the field. He should be uprooted before he goes to seed. Verse 10 says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. How long is God going to put up with this? God, what are you waiting for? Well, we know it's not like a court case where God is gathering evidence. So it will guarantee a conviction. Because, because of God's holiness, the world already stands condemned. It's been that way for thousands of years. No further evidence is needed. Man is without excuse, so judgment is inevitable. God's holiness demands it. But God is not in a hurry. Sin will be judged. Evil will be condemned. All matters of injustice will be rectified, if not now, at the end of the age. In the meantime, until then, God is up to something good. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not forget one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's what's on God's heart. Judgment is inevitable. God's holiness demands it. But until then, his love is in play. And God has masterminded a conspiracy of his own, not to condemn, but to redeem. And that's why judgment is delayed. You see, it's not just us waiting for God. It is God waiting for us. And that has earned him the reputation for being long-suffering. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Right now, God is waiting for Trump and Trudeau and Putin and Kim Jong-un to come to repentance. Are you kidding? That will never happen. Some people are just hopeless, like Manasseh. He is the most hopeless case of all time. Verse 11 says, In so the Lord brought against them the army of the commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner and put a hook in his nose. That must have hurt, huh? He put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Well, is that it? That's all? That's the full extent of his punishment? After all the evil he did, Manasseh gets a hook in his nose? That's it? No, there's more. Verse 12, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. What? Who 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 are we talking about? Manasseh? Are you kidding? In his distress he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before God. Well that's what Uzziah failed to do. He didn't humble himself. And this is precisely why God waited. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Manasseh actually humbled himself, and that's precisely why God waited. Because God somehow knew that this evil king, who had provoked him to anger more than any other, who had done more evil than all the nations the Lord had destroyed, somehow he knew that this hopeless sinner had one repentance left in him that somewhere in the dark cavernous chambers of his lost soul, there was a flickering, sputtering light. God knew that Manasseh was one repentance away from shining like the sun in the kingdom of his father. Verse 13 says, And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. Manasseh refused to listen to God, but God was willing to to listen to Manasseh. That's amazing. 
And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew the Lord is God. No, no, don't do that. It's one thing to save him, but don't put him back on the throne. Put him in custody like Uzziah in a separate house excluded from the palace. Don't put him back on the throne. Have you forgotten how he desecrated the temple? How he slaughtered your people? What if he goes into remission? Lord, have you forgotten? And God said, yes, I have forgotten. That's exactly what happened. Because that's what God does when we repent and we mean it. Isaiah 30, 43, verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. That's what God does. He forgets for his own sake. You know, if somebody has hurt you deeply and you can't forget about it, even though you've forgiven him, that memory continues to torment you. That's why you have to forget for your own sake. God forgot for his own sake. God not only forgives, he forgets. He dropped all charges and gave Matt Manasseh a second chance. Actually, it was probably his 55th second chance. Verse 15, he got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as the altars he had built in the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. And guess what? Verse 17 says, The people, however, continued to sacrifice in the high places, but only to the Lord their God. You see, that's why God waited. Because God knows when the time comes, the strong man will be bound and his house will be ransacked and plunder will be retrieved and defeat will be swallowed up in victory. That's why he's not worried. You see, God knows what he's doing. It scares the heck out of us, but God knows what he's doing. That's why he waits. God is not slow. He is long-suffering. And that's why the life of faith can't be a fast and furious sprint to the finish. It's a long obedience in the same direction. To quote Peterson, who was quoting Nietzsche. Probably he could have punished Manasseh in less than five minutes. But because God is love, he was willing to wait for maybe 50 years. We don't know exactly when this repentance happened, but it was probably near the end of his reign. Because the other version of his life in 2 Kings doesn't even mention his conversion. So for most of that 55 years, Satan dominated the time of possession. And it cost God dearly. For all those years, God was grieved by his wickedness, angered by his irreverence. His holiness was outraged, but there was no hurry. He was willing to wait and suffer and suffer and suffer some more. Oh, the long-suffering of God. 
It is incomprehensible. You know, if Manasseh had not repented, he would have been condemned, of course. And he would have ultimately been sent to hell. It was an open and shut case. So there was no hurry. God waited because there was still a possibility of saving his soul. And it's interesting that for Manasseh, the process of repentance and salvation began when the king of Assyria put a hook through his nose. You know, that's how all hopeless cases are saved. Exactly like that. We are saved by body piercing. By the one who was pierced for our transgressions. When Jesus was crucified, we got a good look at what God's holiness looks like. His hatred of sin. His wrath against evil. God did not dial down the suffering of that sacrifice. Jesus experienced the full extent of God's wrath. So when you look at the cross, you see what God's holiness means, but you also see what his love looks like. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. God's holiness and love were fully demonstrated on the cross for our benefit. And that's why 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Just break that down. If we confess our sins, is there a limit to when we can do that? Do we go too far and it doesn't apply anymore? Is there any condition on that? If we confess our sins, he is faithful in his holiness and he is just, or he's faithful in his love and he's just in his holiness, and he will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. Justice has been served. Because in salvation, we don't get what's coming to us. Jesus got what's coming to us. And we are cleansed, no longer unclean. We have become holy through him. So at the cross, holiness was vindicated, and love wins. So that now, Romans 8 verse 1 there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What an amazing passage of Scripture that displays the long-suffering of God. Impressive, un unbelievable, just incomprehensible. Manasseh was one of the worst sinners in the history of the world. Few have ever violated God's holiness as much as he did. How could God forgive someone like that? How could you save someone like that? Well, it's definitely not through religion. Not any religion I know. There's no amount of human sacrifice that can atone for that kind of sin. How do you save someone like that? Not through good works. All the good works Manasseh did at the end of his life did not make up for his guilt. How do you save someone like that? Well, there's only one way. Only one way, and that way has a name, and that name is? The Bible says no one comes to the Father except through Christ. There is no other name by which we can be saved. It cost God just as much to save me as it did to save Manasseh. Only Jesus can save hopeless sinners like Manasseh or wretches like me. We don't deserve it, we can't earn it, but we will receive it. 
I mean, his grace is absolutely amazing. I still think somebody should write a song about that. So Manasseh is proof that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you matter to God. And this is a God who will not compromise his holiness. But this is a God who loves you so much that he found a way. And this is a God who is willing to suffer and suffer and suffer until where sins were multiplied, God's grace would immeasurably exceed them all. Romans 5.20 through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your holiness and for your love. And you're the only one I know who can pull it off perfectly, who can put it all together and make sure that the, the balance is precise and nothing is compromised, nothing is left out. And you did that through Jesus Christ, who is willing to experience the full wrath of your anger towards Manasseh and the full wrath of your anger towards me and the full wrath of your anger towards all of us in order to make sure that we had a chance to repent and be forgiven and shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, in whose name we pray. Amen.